Welcome back to another exciting episode of Angel Insights, the show that delves deep into the world of angel investing, learning from some of the top business angels and their underlying portfolio companies. I'm your host, Tom Britton, co-founder of Syndicate Room, creators of the Axis Venture Fund, and a special shout out as always to the team at Master Investor for helping us put this show on. Let's get into the episode. So today I'm delighted to welcome Matt Conwell to the show. Mac, it's a pleasure to have you here. It's great to be here, Tom. Thank you for the invite. I'm really excited for the conversation, man. Oh, you didn't have to say that. I feel like we've known each other a while, if I can say that, but actually it's only been about a year. I think I reached out to you on Twitter because I saw some of the comments you were making. I think you had just joined Twitter, to be honest. Like You you hadn't been that active, at least. Yeah. And I saw some of the comments. I was like, wow, he's got it. He's going to blow up. And you know, fast forward a year, you've launched your own fund. You've got, I don't know, 15,000 followers on Twitter, somewhere, somewhere around there huge following and you're just sharing knowledge <laughs> to infinity man so yeah it really really is a pleasure to have you for those who don't know a bit about you and your background and um, before we can talk about your fund specifically i was I was wondering if you'd take us a little bit through what you were doing before you got into investing and then what got you into investing a little bit about me uh, my background I'm from baltimore uh studied computer science um was a government contractor with a top secret clearance supporting the department of defense here did that for several years. 2010 started my first company. Didn't know what a startup was. Didn't know what a VC was. Didn't know what networking was. Which is me and two of my best friends. We were all engineers. They made me CEO because I was the only person that didn't mind talking to people. <laughs> Four and a half years, two accelerators, and a pivot later, we sold that IP to a division of a Fortune 100 company, which was really cool. I started another company after that. Put a new team together. That company didn't work out, so I had a win and a loss. Having a failed company sucks. Um, happy to talk about that. And then I ended up in a marketing firm for a year because I just needed to get a job and get a paycheck again and like be st- like have stability in life. And so like as an entrepreneur, like most entrepreneurs, if you ever get to the point where you start pitching the investors, like we all feel like we could be investors, right? Like I, I've never met an entrepreneur who was like, yeah, I couldn't do that. <laughs> you know, most entrepreneurs, once they start talking to VCs, they're like, I could do that or I want to do that one day. I was no different. You know, you know I was just exact same. Investing is easy. <laughs> so. yeah, of course. It's like, like I know how to find good companies. It's actually really, really, really hard. But like any other entrepreneur, I the same way. And I didn't have a pathway. Or I didn't know a pathway there. And oddly enough, I was working at this marketing firm, and they ended up getting a client that I didn't agree with ethically. So in principle, I quit. When at the time I quit, I didn't have any plans. I didn't know what I was going to do next. Like I didn't know anything. I just knew I couldn't work there. And so I quit on a Friday and the very next Monday, I got an email from the investment arm of the state of Maryland saying they were hiring. And so one of my advisors from my first company actually worked there. So I call him like, hey, I see this call. You're hiring. Do you think I have a shot? Like, here's the other thing. Like, I don't have a college degree because I dropped out. I don't have a finance background. But I'm a startup guy. I know how to build startups. I've done two. I've sold one. I've helped other companies. Like, I could, I could do this, right? And he said, you know, we're doing things differently. You know, it's worth a shot. You should give it a shot. And so that meant, in my mind, I had the job. So, of course, I applied. I got all these letters of recommendation. They interviewed me for four and a half months. And then they invited me to lunch. So I'm like, I've never had a job invite me to lunch. So I figured, oh, this must be cool. Good things are happening. I show up for lunch and they're like, hey, Mac, it's great to see you. Just want you to know you don't have the experience we're looking for for this job. And I'm like, well, why are we here? And then they went to go and say, you know, but we really like you. And, you know, we feel like you could add a lot of value. So we've created this new junior position 
in-house and was wondering, would you be willing to take it? And so they literally created a junior position to bring me on staff and they paid me less money than I'd ever made in my professional career. And I didn't care because this was how I was going to break in the venture. So that's how I got it. Well, you got, you got lunch and a junior position. So I think it was, it was a good trade-off, but, um, so you, you were managing a fund for the state of Maryland and you were learning as you went along. How long did you stay in, in that role? Yeah. So I was working for the Maryland Technology Development Corporation at TEDCO. I worked there for almost four years. Like it was like three years and 11 months. <laughs> and I started off doing seed investments, very traditional seed investments, hundred to 200,000, and just like anything tech. As long as you were in Maryland, you were a tech company, you could fit into our thesis. But when I first got there, and this is in late 2016, they were trying to figure out how to be better at investing in minority-led companies. And so I ended up leading the initiative to create a pre-seed fund for underestimated founders. It's the only state-backed pre-seed fund for estimated founders here in the States. And um, I ended up running that for two and a half years. And then I also did portfolio management for a year. Nice. And I guess in that journey, so we'll call it four years to keep it mm-hmm. simple. Um, at some point in time, you realized, you know what, I, I should just be doing this for myself. Like, what, what was that moment? Like, was it they weren't doing enough? Was there a gap in the market you spotted? Or what made you want to branch off and start your own fund? My goal had originally been to go there, get some learnings and go get a job at a bigger fund, get a real paycheck, get all the cool stuff that people say VCs do. But one founder in particular, this woman creating was a dryer for wigs and hair extension, the only one of its kind. She was this black woman from Baltimore building a product in a really unique market, something that you don't see every day with a really, truly original idea. And I watched her struggle for three years to not get any kind of support. And that included support from, you know, the pre-seed fund that I'm managing. It was really hard for me to see like other people weren't seeing the opportunities I was. And then as I'm talking to other managers and other funds and seeing how other funds work, like even if I got a job at a fund, short of being a GP somewhere, even if I saw a real opportunity in the company, didn't mean I could help them get funded. And that was really frustrating. And then that one woman in particular ended up becoming a surrogate mother to raise the money to start building her prototype. And I was like, all right, this is it. Like, I can't do this. Like, I'm not going to sit by and watch another amazing founder in a unique market with true opportunity not get a shot. Shout out to her, Shauna Step-Jones, the founder of a company called Devaneering Labs, who actually just launched her website, Meet Spundle. No, happy with that shout out. I hope she goes on to do really well. Let's come back to your own fun for a second. You can hear in your voice the frustration with not being able to help, particularly when you see such a good opportunity. Even if you were working for a bigger fund or besides becoming a GP, what steps have to be taken for funds to open up to these opportunities? It's going to take time. A couple of things need to happen, right? Like You need to have just a more diverse workforce in venture because... There are going to be companies that are going to be built with initially within niches that can grow to much larger that are going to start off with some kind of cultural competency, right? And so if you do not have that cultural competency in-house, it becomes difficult. Um, Even for us at Rare Breed, I have a few venture fellows and some friends of the fund who are all Gen Zers. They're super young. They get to see all the coolest stuff. And one of the companies we invested in is a company called Monet Dating, and it's a Gen Z dating app. 
there is no world in which I would ever find, discover, think about, or want to play with a Gen Z dating app. It's just not something <laughs> I would ever do. And it's an app for Gen Zers who are dating, but the way you make connections is through, uh, you have to do a drawing. So you have to make a drawing to connect with somebody, right? That's cool. But I had members on my team who were telling me like, hey, Matt, have you heard of this really cool app? You know, I love it. I've been spending hours on it. I'm like, what are you talking about? This doesn't make any sense to me. But it's because I had young people on my team who I empower to really source and be part of the decision-making process that I was able to see the value in a company like that, right? Like if I don't have those members on my team and I see this company, I'm probably ignoring it. I'm like, do we really need a, a dating app? Like, is drawing this picture really that much of a differentiator? Like, I don't know. But then when I have these Gen Zers around me who are giving me this advice and they're like counseling me, I'm learning so much more. Same thing goes for a product that's for the LGBTQ community or a product for women. Like, I'm not a woman, right? But, you know, there there are women on my team who I can go to, or women, other women managers I can go to and like share notes on and not be scared of opportunities and industries that maybe don't personally resonate with me or I don't have all the personal information on. And so when we get more diverse teams within venture, that'll help change. And then that also means venture needs to broaden their talent pool from, it can't be just two or three schools. There are brilliant people everywhere. And so finding a better way to pick out those brilliant people is really important too. Yeah, no, I agree with that. And we had um, Denzel Walters on the show and he talked about if the investor doesn't get it, then they're probably not going to invest. I, I know you, you mentioned empowering your team, but when you don't get the product, how do you get over that as an investor? You know, you can take your notes, you can look at the market size and listen to what they're saying, but how do you overcome that bias? I guess there's really four things that I look for. The first is, is it a market large enough to support a billion dollar business? Got to start there. Once we get that past there, then I look at customer acquisition, experience, and retention. Because if you can show me you know how to find your customers, your customers are buying it, and they're enjoying the experience or they're enjoying the product, and that they keep coming back, well, I don't really need to know much more about the industry. That is a way for me to evaluate companies where I'm able to take my biases out. Because what I've learned as an investor is, one, a lot of the biases we have come from if you were a former operator, you know everything there is to know about your industry. So you're going to be that or you're going to see so many companies doing so many different things. You're going to learn a lot about different industries. But that information you have in those industries becomes dated really quickly. Like if you look up two, three, four years later, information you had on an industry is completely different. <laughs> right? yeah. And so. Things that were terrible industries are now great industries. Things that used to be great industries are now terrible industries to invest in. But if you can show me that you're in a big market and you know how to find your customers, your customers love you and they keep coming back, then there's probably something there. And so that's how we become the investment firm that never misses out on an opportunity like a wig dryer or a Spanx. I don't need to know about women's undergarments. I need to know that they really love the product and they keep coming back. We could probably figure out how to make a big business with that as a starting point. No, definitely. I kind of feel off the back of the last year and things that are happening, funds are making a show of hiring a more diverse pool, but it's not necessarily in the decision maker space. And I also feel like funds are making a show of creating specific funds for minority founders to say that they did that. 
And and I know you had some thoughts on these funds for minority background founders. These funds are now hiring junior people and of diverse backgrounds and the ability to move up in a firm can be really very limited. Well, that's true for everybody, right? But we do need to get more diverse talent in, especially at the junior position, so we can have more people who have the skill set, right? Like it's not going to be helpful if we just hire a bunch of diverse people into partner roles at firms who don't necessarily have the experience. And if they don't do well, then everybody's going to point back to this is why we shouldn't have hired them to begin with. Well, no, they, they might not have had all the training. They might not have had the experience, right? So having those junior people get in and get experience is important. And most firms, like the ability to move up is just really difficult. There's only going to be so many partners in any fund. Historically, what we've seen is junior people at firms end up joining startups, starting their own startups or starting their own funds. All three options are really great for diverse people, right? So if you got diverse candidates who are at your firm, who then go join a portfolio company, but they're probably going to get a high ranking position at a startup that they didn't have access to or the ability to get a job at before. They're going to go start their own startup and hopefully because of their background, have a better shot at getting funding or they're going to go start a firm, which is good for everybody. Right. So I actually don't think that's a bad thing. Um, but for those who have already been in the industry and have experience, maybe have been doing angel investing, have shown to build some track record, them getting opportunities beyond just those junior level positions, I think, is a key point to what you're saying. The other point about the diverse pools of capital, even as a diverse fund manager, every institution I've raised capital from to date has been out of a diversity initiative. So does that mean I'm not good enough for the regular funds? They tell me how great of a GP I am, but it took you creating diversity initiative to even have the ability to write me a check. So what does that mean? Am I just good for a diverse GP or am I a good GP? Same thing for the startups. But if nothing else, at least capital is flowing to these startups and to these funds that wasn't going to before. But to your point, it can't be initiatives, right? Initiatives are time-based. They don't last forever. It's almost like you're doing an experiment. So what point does it go from this experiment to like, this is just what you do? And so I tell people they don't need to make initiatives. They need to find ways to make this part of the company culture or the fund's culture. And that stuff takes time. So we'll see. It's definitely a positive that there's more money flowing in, but I hate the fact that it has to be segmented off and called something different. Cool, man. Well, look, we, we segued way out <laughs> from where, where we were going to go next. And I would love to talk about your fund specifically. So Rare Breed, I love the fact that you've got a manifesto and anybody can read it online. Can you tell us a bit more about how that came about? Yeah. So the manifesto is these nine key points that really are where our thesis comes from and from key learnings I had having built and managed the fund specifically for underrepresented founders in the state of Maryland. And really one of the big keys is you can find amazing companies anywhere and amazing founders come in all different shapes, sizes, colors, what have you. Uh, from so many different backgrounds. And so for anybody who wants to go through the nine bullet points, go to rarebreed.vc, check it out. I'd love to move on to something that we talked about previously, which was pattern matching. So we talked about how VCs pattern match. You do it as well, but you've got a particular way of pattern matching that I think is pretty cool. So can you take us through that? When people hear pattern matching, they think about the way people look. For me, when I think about pattern matching, I think about the way entrepreneurs think. We invested in a company not too long ago 
where when I met the founder, he gave me the exact same feeling as another founder I invested in before who did really well, who's doing really well, right? Now, here's the thing. One was a 17-year-old black kid from Baltimore. The other one was a 19-year-old Asian kid in San Francisco. Nothing much similar about them, their backgrounds, the way they grew up, but the level of intelligence that they had and the sophistication in which they talked about the problems they were solving and the kind of companies they wanted to build were so striking to me, so strikingly similar. That was like, yeah, no brainer. I got to do this, right? And so when I think about pattern matching, it's more about the business model and the way the entrepreneur is attacking customer acquisition and thinking through the solution they want to build and the company they want to build. That's really what I'm, I'm matching for. So you talked about two very different founders, but also in two very different locations. And one thing that we talk about is the power of network, right? And traditionally, when you think about a network, you think about from the angel side, like a group of people that physically meet up and they're in one area, or even if they meet virtually, they're kind of spread out. But you've kind of taken networking to a different level. <laughs> you know, your network is everywhere and, and you've become quite good at using social media and other channels for networking. Talk me through how you found these two different companies because they were found very differently. So interestingly enough, in the first company, the Black Hit in Baltimore, I was speaking at a really small incubator locally and he happened to be there looking for clients because he called himself a growth hacker. He was trying to find people to do work for, right? So that was amazing. And then on the flip side, the Asian kid in San Francisco, I met him through another VC that I know who was one of his mentors and said, you know, he's really thinking about something really cool. You should talk to him. And so one came from me being out in the community, talking to people, meeting people. The other one came from a network. And that shows how VC should do it, where it's not just relying on your network, you know, you should have multiple strategies on the way you source deals. And so for me, I try to source deals from everywhere I can. And so I'm very active and I'm hunting for deals and I'm, I'm growing a large network and that network is also sending me great deals. And so between me doing it myself and me using my network, I'm able to see some really unique things. And for the one that you invested in San Francisco, you'd mentioned to me that like you'd never met the other VC. It was just a, a Twitter connection that you built up online and you were talking to each other. And I don't think you've ever met the founder either. So it was very much all done virtually, which I think is the way more and more deals are going to be done going forward. And I think that's that's awesome. Moving on from networks, I want to talk a little bit about kind of lessons learned and being a first-time GP, because you're a first-time solo GP. You're learning a lot of things as you go. Building the plane on the way down, I think is how uh, Reed Hoffman describes it. But what have been some of the biggest lessons you've learned in your time setting up Rare Breed? Number one, you already know fundraising's hard. Everybody tells you fundraising's hard, but fundraising is really hard. <laughs> yeah. Right? Like that was like like number one, fundraising is really hard. Well, on that note though, congrats though, because I know that you recently hit your first close and you uh which was five million and now you're at I think it's seven. Yeah, we're at seven million, so we got three more to go to get to a goal of ten. We're also raising in the five oh six C everybody, so we can publicly solicit so <laughs> Don't come at me. But yeah, fundraising is really hard. Two, differentiating is really hard. Every new fund thinks they have this amazing new differentiated thesis. Until you start like getting out there and pitching, it's almost like being a founder. You think you're so differentiated until you realize you're not. 
right? So differentiating yourself can be really, really difficult in this space. And three was to be a little flexible in our strategy, right? Like day one, when we were launching, like this is the strategy, what we're going to do. And once you get into it and start deploying capital, the actual ebbs and flows in the market may force you to reconsider some things of your strategy to prevent you from missing out on deals or missing out on the new dynamics in the market. Very cool. And you obviously have, I'll call it an agenda, but not in a bad way. You know, there's, we've talked about a bit more about what you want to do with it, but what keeps you going? Like what keeps you at the fundraising? And you've had two companies that you've set up on your own, but you've been through a lot, getting jobs, getting a paycheck that's suboptimal to learn the business. And now you're at a stage where you've got the experience, you've set up the fund, you're at 7 million, but you know, you're still grinding away. What keeps you going? It's the founders that keep me going, right? It's the amazing founders that I get to support and back, and specifically the founders who their companies don't exist today without me and my team being there to support them. There's nothing like that. There's nothing in the world like it. Hypothetical, right? So fun five closes, however far in the future that is, fun 10, whatever it may be. When you decide to kind of take a step back from the day-to-day, what do you want your legacy to be? What's going to look like progress to you? What's going to look like success? I want my legacy to be that we built a large multi-stage venture firm based here in Baltimore, Maryland, that helped propel a new generation of entrepreneurs in VCs and fund managers that look and think differently than those who came before me. And if I can take a step back and be able to see that, then I'd have done what I set out to do. I love that. I feel cheesy switching to a quick fire question after that, but uh, I've got to do it. As you know, just let me know the first thing that comes to mind. What's the best book that you've read recently? Any genre, business or not? The best book I've read recently um, is a book called um, Why Should All the White Guys Have All the Fun? It's uh, the autobiography, original F. Lewis, a gentleman who was originally from East Baltimore who went to start a private equity firm and became a billionaire. Amazing book. So it's a book that I should have read much earlier in life, but finally got to listen to the audio book recently. Great book. This is a first. I've not heard of that book, and I'm going to have to add that to my list. So second quick fire question, what tech trend are you most interested in at present? We talked about things being hot and cold, but what gets you going right now? Fintech's interesting. Everybody's talking about blockchain and NFTs, but I'm really excited for innovations happening in the beauty and hair space. We have some really cool beauty and hair companies that we're investing in. And so I'm really excited to see that just because those are industries where we haven't seen innovation on the physical product side in a long time. So I'm excited to see uh, what's coming out in the near future. And and I know you mentioned blockchain and that you've got a a company that you've recently invested in and that's doing something with blockchain. You want to talk about them a little bit? Yeah. So it's a company called Matrix. What they do is they allow for people to basically buy into their favorite esports team or esports player or Twitch person. So using crypto to now support or be a part of your favorite esports teams. Really cool stuff. Something Really excited for, got some really cool growth going on. So everything's an asset now. So the ability to invest in any and everything, it's kind of a thing. Nice. And then the last question, so you touched upon it a little bit, but um, what is it about working with the startups that you find most rewarding? It's seeing them succeed. It's helping them break through those walls or those barriers that they may not have saw coming or 
they didn't know how to get around and being able to help them move beyond that. So rewarding to see people's dreams come to life and see those dreams help and support other people in very meaningful ways. I mean, it's no better job. No, I agree with you on that. So with the benefit of hindsight, what's the one key thing you would have liked to have known at the start of your journey into VC that would have made the difference? I wish I had known or I should have spent more time building my network with other GPs and other VCs all across the globe and having more conversations earlier about what the process was and what it looked like, one, to break in the venture and two, to start a fund. The lack of a network was the biggest thing holding me back when I got started. And so I had to grow that and Twitter was amazing for that. But if I don't have Twitter, I don't have a fund. And that's because I don't have a network. I wish I had spent more time earlier building that network. I've been much further along. <laughs> I think that's a, a shout out to Jack Dorsey. <laughs> so, <laughs> cool, man. Look, it, it's been an absolute pleasure having you on the show. So I wanted to say thank you for the time. And, and just to repeat, you know, for anyone that wants to follow you or read more or invest, where should they go? What should they do? If you want to invest, go to rarebreed.vc. There's a button you can click to become an LP. Uh, you must be an accredited investor. And if you want to get in touch with me or follow me on Twitter at Matt Conwell, M-A-C-C-O-N-W-E-L-L. Follow him. It is worth it. I promise you a wealth of knowledge. And with that, I'll say thank you and have a great rest of your week, my friend. You too, man. We'll talk again soon. And for more news about Syndicate Room, follow us on Twitter at Syndicate Room or myself at Tom Britton. And we do, as always, hope you'll join us for the next episode of Angel Insights in a few weeks time. Until then. Bye.